But now, all of a sudden, Elijah reappears in chapter 21. I mentioned last week that five or six years could have passed uh, since the um, famous episode on the top of Mount Carmel in chapter 19 where Elijah defeated all those uh, priests and prophets of the pagan god Baal. So several years passed, and that's why chapter 20 and 21, up to this point, you really don't see Elijah. But he reappears uh, again in verse 17. So look with me at 17, chapter 21. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. So you almost feel the need to reintroduce him to you. He's a Tishbite. Came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Rise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed, have you killed and also taken possession? So uh, here Elijah is told to go to Ahab and begin having a conversation with Ahab about how he has killed Naboth and taken possession of his vineyard. Notice he technically didn't kill Naboth. Uh, Jezebel orchestrated, Jezebel used other people to stone him, but notice he's, he's complicit. That's why Elijah says, have you killed? Uh, he, he's responsible too, not just Jezebel, not just the people who threw the stones. Uh, he, he was part of the plan to kill him just so he could get that piece of property that backed up to his property as king. So have you killed and also taken possession? And you say to him, here starts the judgment. Here's where we start heading toward the death of these people. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick, lick your own blood. Now, a couple things about that. Uh, if you have a study note, and uh, hopefully you have a good study Bible, uh, your study note may say some of this sort of thing. One, uh, please remember that the dogs in biblical times are not like my dog, Jaxie. <laughs> they were not domestic, domesticated. They were scavengers. They lived at the garbage heaps. Uh, yeah, they licked up blood. Uh, they killed other animals. Uh, they were not domesticated. That, that's, that's the modern world where dogs are domesticated. So that's why you, you, you really never see dogs presented positively in the Bible. They weren't domesticated during that period. That's why you hear people like the Israelites uh, referring to the Samaritans as dogs. Well, in my world, that's a compliment compared to most humans I know. Um, but it was not in the biblical world. Uh, dogs are scavengers. They're not domesticated. So that's why, because you're going to start hearing quite a bit now about dogs licking up the blood of dead people. But these are different kinds of dogs than the ones we've domesticated as pets. Now, the other thing, because again, context is important. Here, Elijah speaking on behalf of the Lord. And it's the Lord who says to Ahab, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Now, you probably shouldn't even know the answer to this, but you might. Does that happen when Ahab dies? Not really. 
There will be blood that will be licked up. It's not going to be where Naboth was, though. So there's a sense in which this prophecy will only be partially fulfilled. And it's all because of what's about to happen in this text, which makes this text important. Ahab's finally going to do something approaching right. And as a result of that, this, this edict or this prophecy of judgment is going to at least be partially withheld from God. There's going to be some dogs licking up some blood, but it's not going to be where Naboth was killed. Because uh, we know later on where Ahab gets killed. And it's not, it's not there where, Na- where Naboth was killed. Um, so you need to see what it is Ahab's getting ready to do. Really out of character for Nahab. Uh, probably in character that even when he, get, when he does what he's getting ready to do, he doesn't do it well. But the fact that he even tries to do it is out of character for, for Ahab. So look at verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Um, Ahab is really the enemy of all the people. Ahab's the one who has led them into idolatry. Ahab is the one who, because of his uh, marriage to a foreign pagan wife, Jezebel, has brought pagan gods among the people. But uh, if you're in Ahab's position, Elijah feels like an enemy to you. Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you. Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, If you're going to do Christian theology well, if you're going to do Christian theology well, there's two things you've got to do. You've got to keep God's redeeming work of grace radically amazing and wonderful is God, that work of grace has got to be all of God. It's got to be um, completely on the merits of Christ. You've got to make a big deal out of God's grace. And at the same time, you better make a really big deal out of human sin. They go together. Uh, if you don't make a big deal out of human sin, you don't give Jesus anything to redeem. We're sort of left with a Christian community here in America that doesn't have much to redeem if you listen to them. But sin is taken very, very seriously in the Bible and Jewish Christian tradition. And that's why what the, the way God takes care of it in the work of Christ is, is, is beyond amazing. So if you do those two things, you know, keep the work of Christ um, far more amazing than you can imagine and keep human sinfulness far more depraved than you imagine, you'll, in, you'll end up doing the, uh, Christian theology well. Let go of either side of that coin. You're going to get in weird places, such as our culture today. Again, I see people in Christian churches. I don't don't know what they think needs to be redeemed in their life. They want everything celebrated, everything affirmed. They want to get a trophy for everything they do. So you've lost, and there's there's a 150-year history here in the United States as to how we lost the concept of sin how we lost the concept of the Christian concept of, of the human nature. And by the end of the 1800s, all of a sudden we have human beings being born as a blank slate. And you just kind of write good or write bad on that. Um, by the way, that, that Christian heresy is called Pelagianism. We decided that in the 4th century. So don't be a Pelagian. That's probably not a term you know. But if you think, you know, you're a blank slate and you have the will or the power 
to kind of create your life, uh, you know, for good or bad. That's Pelagianism. Um, human, the Christian, Christian faith says, yeah, we're not that smart. We're not even smart enough to receive Christ. We enjoy our depravity. We are trapped in our depravity. Martin Luther wrote his book entitled The Bondage of the Will. Yeah, you're not as free as you think you are to choose. Um, we are free. We're made free by the grace of God. We're given a degree of freedom by the grace of God. But left to our nature, uh, we, are, we are depraved creatures. Again, if you don't understand that, you just put Jesus out of work. I mean, what's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? If you can take your own way through education or good environment or, well, yeah, you just, you just unemployed Jesus there, which is a bad idea theologically. You, you need the work of Jesus. Uh, that's why I love the way, and it's going to be mentioned here, you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, you didn't just make a mistake. You didn't just have poor judgment. It's not just your brokenness. We sell ourselves out to our sin nature. I mean, we joyfully, we, we joyfully walk away from God. That's the human nature. Uh, you, you read Genesis 3, 3 through the rest of the Bible, and you see human nature. So you've sold yourself out. So the Hebrew there, I, I wish I had a better English translation. Is there something besides, in your English translation, is something besides you've sold yourself out to evil? Um, how would you say that to this culture? This teenage Bible says, you have chosen to do what the Lord said is wrong. Yeah, you have, I, I might even say you have joyfully chosen <laughs> with great confidence and um, with no sense of regret to do what the Lord has said is wrong. That's being sold out to doing something. Anyway, so notice that this Hebrew phrase is going to get translated to English twice here. So Elijah tells Ahab, you have sold yourself, and in a sense you've become a slave to, that's underneath that word, sold yourself. You become a slave to uh, do evil in the sight of the Lord. So, as a result, verse 21, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you, and I will utterly burn you up. And some of this is going to be mitigated because of what Ahab's getting ready to do. I will utterly burn you up and will cut, you, uh, cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. The line of Ahab is going to be judged greatly. Um, but some of the judgment that's aimed at Ahab here, uh, like the dogs leaking up his blood there in Naboth, where Naboth was killed, or the burning up, some of this judgment is going to be mitigated um, in regards to Ahab, not in regards to his dynasty. Verse 22, And I will make your house, that's dynasty, that's what it means, is your dynasty. I will make your house or your descendants, your dynasty, like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first king of the divided kingdoms. He not only created the divided kingdoms, he set up pagan worship places in the north, which was called Israel as opposed to the south, which is Judah. So, he's, so God, through Elijah, said, I will make your house, your descendants, your, your dynasty, like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, or like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger uh, to which you have provoked me. 
God still can be provoked to anger. Again, we didn't throw the Old Testament out. We read the Old Testament through New Testament lens. If you don't think God still gets angry, you don't need the Old Testament. Go read the book of Revelation. It's in the New Testament. Go read Jesus. Chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel where he's... um, The Pharisees have gotten on his last nerve. And he lets them have it. Yeah, you probably hadn't heard that chapter preached on recently because that, that's not the Jesus meek and mild, always loving, kind, and generous. Um, yeah, you don't need the Old Testament even to show that God can get angry. God has emotions. Um, so here, here Elijah is saying that Ahab has provoked God to anger. And because you have made Israel to sin, it's bad enough that Ahab's been choosing it, but, he, but he's made other people to do it. Uh, verse 23, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. That will happen. We'll look at it later. Anyone belonging, verse 24, anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, uh, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Uh, particularly in ancient cultures in the Bible, we see this throughout Scripture. Uh, to desecrate a corpse is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. To not allow for proper burial. You know, that's why one of the acts of mercy in Christian tradition is the care of the dead. Not just up to the point they take their last breath, but the care of the dead themselves is, is, a, Christian, is a Christian act of mercy. That's why we have graveyards, we have columbariums. Uh, you probably know some old traditions like sitting up with the dead. You know, you know, the care of the dead, the washing of their bodies, the taking because matter is sacred, bodies are sacred. But the care of the dead has always been a Jewish and a Christian act of mercy. Um, that's why to, to not allow the dead to be cared for and to let the scavengers and the birds eat their flesh, that, that's a terrible, terrible thing to do to a human being. So that's part of the judgment. Verse 24, anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of him of his who dies in the open country, the birds uh, of the heavens shall eat. Okay, stop right there. Don't, don't look at the next heading. Some of this is going to be mitigated in regards to Ahab. Not Jezebel, not Ahab's descendants, but some of this is going to be mitigated. So, what could, what's the only thing possible that will mitigate lighten some of this judgment toward Ahab. We have a good theological word for it. Thank you, repentance. Yeah, the American church needs to learn a deep, rich, vigorous theology of repentance. Um, Again, Americans don't know they got much to repent against about, so we don't have a good theology of repentance. Uh, But you're going to see Ahab repent. Which is shocking. I mean, it really is shocking at this point. Because we, we know Ahab well, Ahab well by this point. Um, it's not going to last. Because, you know, after chapter 21, guess what comes? Chapter 22. <laughs> Doesn't last long. But the fact he does it at all is amazing. And even more amazing is the fact that God accepts it. And some of the judgment that's been prophesied against Ahab is, is, is going to be reduced. So look at verse 25. Uh, there, there was none who sold himself. There's that word again. Sold himself like a slave. 
uh, to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Um, yeah, don't forget Jahab's the power behind, I mean, Jezebel's the power behind the throne with Ahab. Uh, but, you know, there's no one who has sold himself out as a slave to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. But, but Jezebel was his cheerleader in all the evil that he did. And she really instigated it and incited it. Verse 26, he acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And in my ESV, my English Standard Version, that's in parenthesis, what I just read. Because it, it, it reason your English translators put in parenthesis, it's like they can't even, the biblical authors can't even tell you about Ahab's repentance till they remind you how bad he was. I doubt you've forgotten. If you've been reading First Kings, I doubt you've forgotten how bad Ahab was. But lest you've forgotten so that you don't appreciate the power of repentance. Uh, yeah, verses 25 and 26 are just inserted here to say that they, they, they brought pagan idolatry to the people. They set up Baal statues. They set up Asherah poles. Asherah was a goddess. Um, yeah, I mean, they not, and not only did they sin by doing those things, they led all the people of Israel into sinning. So, yeah, I, I like the way the author just makes sure you don't forget that. Um, not like you would, but make sure you're not, you don't forget that because you're going to see an amazing thing beginning at verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, the words from Elijah, not the parenthetical statement, but the words from Elijah. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth or burlap on his flesh and he fasted, and he lay in sackcloth. He slept in sackcloth, and he went about dejectedly. He went about mournfully. Um, that looks like repentance. And that's why when you get to 22 and beyond, uh, some of the judgment is going to be alleviated that's coming on Ahab. Not all of it, but, but some of it. So you, you've, you've, got, you've got him um, repenting. We're going to talk about repentance in a minute. Um, and again, you know, my, my, if I'd have been standing there watching this, I doubt I would have trusted Ahab, you know. But keep reading, verse 28, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the particular disaster that he just spoke in his days but in his son's days, I would bring the disaster upon his house. So he repents, and as a result of repenting, history changed. You know, when we talk about prayer, prayer changes things. Prayer of repentance changes things. There are things that will not happen unless we pray. Uh, there are things that um, will not happen or will happen unless we pray prayers of repentance. Our God, God sovereignly directs the world around us not through angels all the time, but through the prayers of God's people. So, um, you know, if we really believe that prayer is what the Bible says prayer is, we would pray more. We kind of think everything's going to happen, it's going to happen, there's not much we can do about it. And that's not a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview has God involved in human history, and one of God's primary ways of being involved in human history is through the prayers of God's people. 
That's why our prayers don't only change us, they change circumstances, they change people. Again, one of my favorite quotations, Walter Wink, New Testament scholar, history belongs to the intercessors. Yeah, I, I mean, when the Christian community has been strong, it's when we understood this. You know, God doesn't, you know, when God wants to accomplish something, He tends to do it through us. He could send angels to feed the hungry. He chooses to do it through us. Um, he, he, he could choose angels to do all of His work, and they're probably done more effectively than we do it. But He chooses to do it through us, and He primarily chooses to do it through our prayers and our activity. Not just our activity, but through our prayers and our activity. That's the way the sovereign God has created. That, that is a spiritual law that is just as valid as like the natural law of gravity. And, um, you know, if we believe that, we'd pray more. But you, you, you think your kids are going to do regardless. They're going to do what they want to do and what, regardless of how you pray. That's why I think a couple weeks ago I said... Um, I was looking at some evil king somewhere in some setting. I think it was a sermon. Can't remember which evil king. Oh, uh, the kings who preceded king, good king Josiah. And look at all these evil kings that all of the kings of evil, all the kings of Israel, by the way, were bad. Two of the kings of Judah, after the kingdom divided, two were decent, even good. They all were bad. I, I tend to think people get the kind of rulers they deserve. You get the kind of. Um, you get the kind of rulers um, that, that your prayers bring about or your lack thereof bring about. Yeah, if we really believe that, that uh, prayer changes circumstances and life and history, we'd be praying more. But we got this, you're, you're, more, you're more Greek stoic than you are Christian. You believe that whatever will be, will be. Que Sarah, theology according to Doris Day. <laughs> That's not Bible theology. That's not Bible theology. Um, anyway, Ahab repented. And it's amazing. I, you don't see it coming. Uh, this is not the first time Ahab's spoken, been spoken to by Elijah. But for whatever reason, at this point, Elijah speaks to Ahab and he repents. Um, you know, the human being in me would have given up on Ahab a long time ago. And that tells us something, too, about our prayers and, and the way we pray for people. Sometimes we just give up on people. You know, I know, you know, we just, in the fall, we do our nominations process. And something I've had to tell church people for 38 years, you're sitting there doing the nominations process, and you say, well, let's ask so-and-so to do such and such. Somebody in the room is going to say, well, we asked her in 1973, and she said no. And I said, well, mate, let's ask her again just to see if something's changed. I mean, you know, need to not give up. on. I mean, we don't see this coming in Ahab. Um, but there was something, there was enough grace in Ahab. Not enough, there's no good in Ahab, but there's enough grace in Ahab that did help them, lead them to repentance. By the way, uh, there's no good in human beings, but there's enough grace in every human being, I think, a lot of us think. Uh, there's enough grace, no goodness, but enough grace in every human being to propel human beings to accept Christ. It's not because they're smart enough to do it, not because any of us are smart enough to do it, but there's enough grace in human beings to, 
to accept the saving grace of God in Christ. Uh, that grace that's in every human being, uh, some, some traditions of the church, they call it common grace. You know, it rains on the just and the unjust. Everybody, even, even wicked, even Ahabs in life get, get to experience some of God's grace. So this conviction that there's enough grace in every human being, because uh, again, there's no goodness in humanity. Uh, there's enough grace in every human being um, to get them to receive Christ. Sometimes we call that common grace. That's the grace that's common to, the, to all human beings uh, because of God's goodness. We Methodists don't call it common grace. The Methodists in the room, what's our term? <clears throat> Thank you, Provenient Grace. You've got a whole section of your hymnal titled Provenient Grace. That's the grace from conception to conversion. Again, you weren't smart enough to receive Christ. There's no goodness in the human being. There is no health in us apart from God's grace. I'm quoting something I'll share with you in a minute. There's no health in us apart from God's grace. Uh, but every human being has enough of God's grace, I think, um, to push them to receive salvation. Prevenient doesn't mean that which prevents. Prevenient is the old King James word for preceding or prior. But we, you know, you know how church folks are. We called it prevenient 300 years ago. We still call it prevenient. But that means prior or preceding grace. There's always enough grace. There's no goodness in human beings. And that's why apart from God's grace, we, we would not even come to Christ. But there's common grace that's, that's sprinkled throughout. The other way of saying it is kind of like what um, Blaise Pascal used to say, or Billy Graham, there's a God-shaped vacuum. So whether it's the presence of God's, some of God's grace, or whether there's something remaining of the image of God post-sin, or there's, whether there's a God-shaped vacuum, there's something God has done first to make it even an option for us to come to Christ. Again, this is important to make sure we keep sin sinful. You know, there's nothing in the human being that would even cause you to receive Christ. There is none right... I'm quoting Bible, by the way. There is none righteous, no, not one. You know, um, um, now I'm sure there's stuff in this series that... I, I know, I, I think I mentioned Grand Chester before, and some say. You ever, you ever watch Grand, Grand, Grand Chester? PBS, Britbox? Yeah, I like it. Um, I'm sure there's stuff that could be cleaner. The only thing I don't like about it, I mean, here's an Anglican priest that's helping solve crimes. The only thing I do not like about it, because it's Hollywood or London, I guess, doing it at this point, that well, one his sermons are a pop psychology. You know, I would I would just love for him to. It usually ends with him standing, speaking to his congregation. I just wish he'd like reference Bible somewhere, but his sermons like pop psychology. But what what really, which I knew again, this is not Church of England. He needs to read his stuff. This is why I know it's London. Is they need to hire them a better church consultant if they're going to be portraying clergy. But every now and again, that guy will say, well, actually, it's the, the detective he works with, always tells the, the Anglican pastor clergy, you know, you're always looking for the good in the people. You see good in everybody. And every now and again, and I just tremble when I, and that's fine, you can say that, but that's, I, I tremble when I hear that Anglican pastor say, people are basically good. Well, no. 
Um, Let me give you the Anglican prayer of confession. You know, send this to Grantchester. Um, We Christians have known, yeah, that's Hollywood, that's London. That's pop culture. That's pop psychology. And we go, you know, it was Freud and Dewey. We know how we got to this point historically. You know, um, I, I, I use the Book of Common Prayer for my daily worship, private daily worship. The Book of Common Prayer is the basis of all English Protestant worship. Before we created this, those of us in England were worshiping Latin. Book Common Prayer was created in 1549. It's been updated since 1549. Those of you that pray, forgive us our trespasses instead of forgive us our debts. King James says debts. Book of Common Prayer is older than King James. It says trespasses, so we trespass. So the Book of Common Prayer is, 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 is the basis of English Protestant worship. Came out of England, 1549, revised in 1555, uh, revised again in 1662. Anyway, there's morning prayer and there's evening prayer services. Um, they're all chocked full of Scripture from beginning to end. Um, but So I use a book of common prayer for my daily worship. Um, I try to do morning prayer. I try to do evening prayer. Um, church gets in the way of my evening prayer. There's not much that gets in the way of my prayer at 6 a.m., but sometimes people get in my way of, e- of evening prayer. But both morning prayer and evening prayer in good Protestant English, and they, by the way, a lot of Roman Catholic stuff that was translated into English to give us this. So this is very historic. As soon as you approach God, as soon as you approach God, you know, so there's a scripture sentence, Something like, there's three options. I was glad when they said to me, uh, we will go to the house of the Lord. The next thing you do is prayer confession. You don't go running in, bebopping to the presence of God like he should be happy you're there. Which he is because of Christ, but not because of you. So you, you know, this, then, you do, you, then you have to go to confession before you do anything else. Um, the call to confession... I'm talking about the importance of repentance. The call to confession, and this is why the pastor on Grandchester knows this if he is a real Anglican pastor. Dearly beloved, the scripture teaches to us to acknowledge our many sins and offenses, not concealing them from our Heavenly Father, but confessing them with humble and obedient hearts that we may obtain forgiveness by the infinite goodness, by his infinite goodness and mercy. He even had mercy on Ahab. We ought at all times humbly to acknowledge our sins before Almighty God, but especially when we come together, when we come together in His presence to give thanks for the great benefits we have received at His hands, to declare His most worthy praise, to hear His holy word, and to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others those things which are necessary for our life and salvation. Therefore, draw near with me to the throne of heavenly grace. Uh, if you're in a hurry that morning, you just say, let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. But you start with the prayer of confession. Here's the traditional prayer of confession. Now, this is the corporate prayer of confession that all Christians can pray together. It should lead you, as it should even here, lead you to a time of confessing your personal private sins, being specific. Um, but here, here's the corporate prayer. Um, in 15, in a little bit updated 1549 language. This, this gave us all of our, your, your marriage ceremony. This is the book that gave you stuff like 
those whom God has joined together that no one put asunder. Came out of this service. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Came out of this, but all this stuff is part of our tradition now. Anyway, here's, here's, here's our original prayer of confession. And I want you to listen. Yeah, this doesn't fit American pop psychology well. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Follow your heart. Well, that's a dumb advice. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. Well, you don't have to worry about that one if you don't know what his holy laws are. They don't even know the Big Ten anymore or don't care. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things we ought to have done. And we have done those things we ought not to have done. As sins of commission and omission. Sins of commission are what we do. Sins of omission when we don't do the right things. Both are sinful. Uh, here's a phrase that I like. And apart from thy grace, there is no health in us. That means spiritual and physical health. Yeah, apart from thy grace, there's no health. We've never been a blank slate. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. And this is what I really like. This, by the way, in the 1979 prayer book, this got, this got sanitized. That's why I still like the old version. But, but thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Now what that means is, we are, we are sinners who bring misery on ourselves. That's what miserable means. We bring misery on ourselves by our sin. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare, spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent according to thy promises, declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. Uh, to the glory of thy holy. Sober, by the way, just doesn't mean you're not intoxicated with alcohol. It means you've got good sense. That we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of thy holy name, amen. And then at that point, um, the pastor will say something like, we still do on Sunday mornings, something like, um, Thou mighty and merciful Lord, grant you absolution and remission of all your sins, true repentance, that false repentance won't get you anything. True repentance, amendment of life, and the grace and consolation of the Holy Spirit, or something like, grant we beseech thee, merciful Lord, to thy people, thy faithful people, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all of our sins and serve thee with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, I don't know when you prayed your last prayer of repentance. Uh, use the book Calm Prayer, you'll pray that twice a day. It's important. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Yeah, we in the American culture, we don't. I think we've lost a sense of how great our need is before God. Um, and you know, and and we've lost a sense of how absolutely remarkable, unbelievable, almost it is that God will accept our repentance. He accepted Ahab's. Um, so we, just like we should pray more if we know what prayer accomplishes, we should, if we really understood our nature and who we are, we would repent more. That's why in historic churches, you always have a prayer of repentance at the beginning 
of a worship service. You go to Catholic, Anglican, Episcopal, Lutheran, this Methodist. Um, there's always going to be a prayer of repentance at the beginning. You don't go bebopping into the presence of God without acknowledging that you don't even deserve to be there. You know, sometimes we go bebopping the presence of God thinking God should be just ecstatic that we showed up. You know, that's not the right attitude. You know, the Bible says over and two things that fascinate me. The Bible says over and over that the humble will be exalted. God will raise up the humble. And the opposite of that is true also. Remember the song that Mary sang, the Magnificat. He'll raise up the humble, he'll cast down the proud. But the other thing that is fascinating to me in Scripture, over and over and over, because this is a little unusual for Scripture, we are told to humble thyself. Humble yourself. Usually we're told let God do stuff for us. But in regards to humility, because of human pride, the Bible says humble yourselves, because the last thing you probably want is for God to humble you. Again, it's, it's just baffles me looking at this American culture or, or Western European culture, or Australian culture, or Canadian culture. We've, not, we've said since the beginning of the Christian movement, pride is the parent of all other sin. Pride is the chief sin. Pride's what God has kicked out of the garden. Pride is, is what produces all the other sins. Um, pride will make you independent from God. Pride makes you not realize what you need from God. Pride is the basic sin that creates all others. Um, yeah, I get concerned about how even the word pride is used in this culture. We, we've even elevated pride to a virtue. It's fascinating to me. But, but you can do that when you have a post-Christian culture. When you get Christianity out of the way, you can, you can accomplish a lot of things you want to do at that point. But as long as you've got Christianity sort of there nagging you that says the chief virtue is humility, the chief sin is pride, we should be a people of ongoing repentance. Yeah, the culture doesn't like that. Culture just says, you know, you, have, you, you, know, you stand before St. Peter at the pearly gates, and if your good outweighs your bad, they open the door. That's not... Yeah. And then you walk away and sing Amazing Grace one more time and totally ignore what, totally ignore what you just sang. Yeah, I mean, you've got, if you're going to do Christian or Jewish theology well, you've got to keep grace very amazing and you've got to keep human nature very depraved. So it's incorrect thing when someone has a doctoral degree to say I'm very proud of you. What I always say, help me. I will help you because I would not... What I would, you wouldn't like that. Well, I, no, I, I, I slip up and do that. Uh-huh. What I always try to, because I've got grandchildren now, what I always <laughs> try to do is I try to replace the word proud with grateful. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I mean, there is a good sense of pride, because you're saying you're grateful. You're, you are, you know, you're saying something good at that point. But I try to say grateful rather than proud. Because proud, yeah, that's a good question. When's proud good and when's proud bad? I had a devotional that talked about this. In my prayer journal, I have a whole page where I was taking, every time I think about saying proud, 
and, and turned it into a different sentence. And it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh, I catch myself on that one. Because it, you start thinking about, you get lazy when you just say, I'm proud of you, or I'm, I'm it, it's a, it becomes a response that we just say. Mm-hmm. And it makes you go and say something more specific to the person mm-hmm. um, about how they did in their job or their schoolwork or whatever they did that day. But I, I go back to it every now and then and look at it and realize, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. I need to go back to it. But it, it's a real interesting exercise. Um, it is. I mean, uh, and I do catch myself, but it is because particularly for those of us in the Jewish Christian faith, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God created through the power of the Word. We have the written Word. Words are important to us. So, you know, I try to, when I, when I almost have the P and the R out of my mouth before I realize, <laughs> replace it with grateful, thankful, impressed. It's just like the other one that we're prone to do that just violates our Christian faith big time is when I look at some man and say, good luck. I choke on that one. Sometimes I got all, both words out before I choke. But I know better. There's no luck in the universe. Yeah, I mean, what can you replace good luck with? Blessings to you. Have a blessed day. I wish you well. Yeah, and again, it's, it's debated, but there are a lot of scholars out there that says the word luck is connected to the word Lucifer. So I would be wary of using that. I mean, I know the people are wishing me well when they say good luck, but again, you just painted a worldview. You might as well say, well, I hope the stars are aligned in your favor. <laughs> that just doesn't, that doesn't fit my Christian worldview. Um, yeah, words are important. Words are important. They, uh, notice how pride's being used in this culture. Um, no, no, no Christian culture. We're not a Christian culture anymore. We're post-Christian with pockets of Christianity. And we were, I heard that when I went to seminary in the early 1980s. So, I mean, that's, that's ongoing. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you want them, every, every, whether they win or lose, you want to say something to encourage. And grateful doesn't quite. Mm-hmm. Give it another word. Talk about after the fact. That's wonderful. That's you did wonderful. Yeah. I'm impressed. I mean, not going to like burst into flames if you say proud. But. Um, <laughs> Karma. Good Christian people talk about karma. And that just violates. No, you get one shot at this. You don't have, you don't get to go around twice or three times or four times or five times, depending on how much karma you get. Good karma you get. Um, yeah. Well done. That's scriptural. Well done. I'm impressed. Um, yeah. Words are important. You know, somebody told me years ago, words create worlds. And that's very biblical too, by the way. Words create worlds. So, you know, I know overthinking things can get a little painful at times, but I, I try to almost overthink my words because words create worlds. And it, it helps create reality. Again, um. If I call it an affair instead of adultery, those are different things. Fair sounds classy, sophisticated. 
fair sounds yeah, adultery. Um, something between two consenting adults sounds much better than fornication. Yeah, words are important. And, and you know, if one of the things, you know, give, we'll finish the text. One of the things that as a historian I know, if you want to control culture, if you want to control any culture, you need to do two things. Control the language and erase history. You do those two things, you'll control the culture. That's why if you look in the, um, Oxford, the, the unabridged Oxford English Dictionary, you know, you may see a word, you know, definition, 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 definition. You may get down to the Nazi definition. Because they redefined words. Uh, um, the, you know, what do they call it? The final solution. We call it the murder of Jews. They call it the final solution. Yeah, you need to be careful with, with the language. Um, anyway, finish the text. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, he put sackcloth on his flesh, fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Um, I, I wish, I wonder how Jezebel responded. Uh, and the word of the Lord came to Elisha the Tishbite. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself for me? Um, I'm sure if I'd have been Elijah, I said, I know, Lord, but I doubt it. I really do doubt it. But, you know, and that's why I'm sure Elijah wouldn't have believed it if the Lord hadn't said to him, you know, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in, in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. And that does happen. That does happen. Um, disaster comes. Um, so, yeah, when we come back next week, we'll, we'll look at... Um, We'll look at um, both. We'll finish up with the death of Ahab, death of Jezebel, and then we got to get Elijah ascended into heaven in his chariot. And that finishes the study of Elijah.